This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. Is our democracy on hold during the pandemic? Parliament has finally come to an agreement about how often and how to sit. But it's an agreement with made without the Conservatives, who are the official opposition. Is the minority Liberal government getting enough oversight while they spend more money than ever and assert the prerogatives of an emergency? Also, there's growing evidence that China suppressed the real news about the pandemic at the early stages and that the WHO, the World Health Organization, was complicit in this, while our government seems to be treading very softly on this. Let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village and former City Councilor, as well as Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Everybody keeping okay? Oh, yes. Okay. So, far, so good. Well, well, so far, although I'm uh, dying to see uh, Charles's uh, facial here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, yeah. He could, uh, Charles, you can uh, you can put it up on Instagram or something. Oh, but no, it's it... the fingernails that are the real problem. They're oh, up God, I think it might terrible. frighten your clients, though. John, let's start. Uh, from you. Um, strange goings on on the Hill. Uh, so on the one hand, at these times, there's a natural uh, propensity for people to to trust their leaders. Uh, so the Conservatives have come under quite a bit of flack. Uh, but it was also the Conservatives who who found some, some pretty big uh, loopholes and power grabs in that first iteration of the first emergency bill. Well, this is it, Libya, and I think that, you know, the, the issue that, that Andrew Shearer is facing, and, and, and a lot of people gave him a lot of credit early on when he did, uh, as you mentioned, uh, come up and, and sort of uh, saw that there were some, some clauses within the bills, the economic bills that the prime minister was going to put forward that, that had unusual power grabs, and, and he brought that to, to light publicly and, and challenged it, and, and the government ultimately uh, removed those clauses. So he ended up getting, I think, some a win uh, and, and gave opposition a little bit of a bit of wind in their sails, so to speak, uh, as a result of, of, of that. Um, but I think that you can play your cards a little bit too much, or, or um, and, and I think you know, this whole issue of wanting to keep a government to account, uh, a lot of Canadians would agree with that. But I also think that we're in uncertain and unprecedented times now where the Prime Minister does have and was given some powers to be able to make uh, policies and legislations for the sake of time, because no one, no one, we don't have a lot of time with, with respect to money distribution. Um, and I think that, you know, I do share coming back saying that we should have four uh, meetings, uh, Parliament uh, a week versus uh, versus the one that was being proposed 
might have been a bit of an overstep. And, and then he ultimately went back to three, then to two, and then obviously the, the, the government, the opposi- other opposition parties, ended up voting to have the one. Um, and I think it might have might have stung the and uh, and and the opposition party on that particular move. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I'm sure you've all seen the editorial in the Globe and Mail today saying democracy is an essential service. And and like uh, the editorial board at the Globe, I'm wondering, so you have uh, grocery, grocery clerks who make at or uh, slightly above minimum wage, they're going to work and exposing themselves. You have healthcare workers who are certainly endangering themselves. You have parliament, which I would think socially distanced parliament i'm familiar with that big building that it is certainly not one of the most uh, dangerous workplaces anywhere you know why can't they go to work karen yeah i i agree with you libby and and i think that um it, it is as we work through the emergency and i i think that it was appropriate that certain powers get divested to the prime minister but as we move along i think it becomes more and more important that the opposition does have a role to play because we all can agree that we are in very, we're in uncharted territories now. And once we get through the public health crisis, there's going to be a lot of issues that this country needs to work through in terms of economic stimulation, um, how we work with our trading partners, what does the new globe look like in terms of cooperation. And there's, those are big issues. And those issues need to be debated because we have never dealt with them on a strategic level in the way that we're going to have to deal with them now. And we need a, a robust and vibrant opposition. And at some point, and, and I give Andrew Scheer credit because he understands what his role is, and he's not been an obstructionist in this process at all. He's been very willing to work with the government in making sure that uh, Canadians are safe. But as we move into this, you know, as we move through this process, we're going to have very different conversations, and we need a strong voice and a strong opposition. And, and I don't think it's too much to expect that they can go to work because it can be demonstrated, to your point, that they can do that safely. Charles? Well, I thought the Globe editorial was just full of it. I mean, there's one line that really stood out for me, and, and it, the line read, if it's safe for MPs to meet in person on Wednesdays, why not Tuesdays and Thursdays too? And the reality is it's not safe to meet any day, right? But obviously there's a fundamental premise of our democratic institutions continuing to function and providing some degree of accountability. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's just a false argument on the part of the Globe and Mail, and I was really disappointed by it. And, and it also lacks some basic truths, such as the fact that um, the House will sit virtually every Tuesday and in person every Wednesday. On May 7th, a third sitting will be added on Thursdays. The House is going to sit in committee of the whole format, which was with complete agreement of all parties including the Conservatives. And that means instead of the the rigid structures that are imposed by, you know, typical House dealings around question period where people are limited to 30 seconds and question period is basically 45 minutes long, Committee of the Whole will provide two full hours a day for opposition members to ask questions of the Prime Minister and ministers that are present. And it will not limit them to 30 seconds. It will actually be much more in a committee format. And so reasonable accommodation has been made with regards to making sure that our federal parliament can continue to function. And the other bit of hypocrisy is, why aren't we seeing the same line of attack being used against Doug Ford at Queen's Park? Why shouldn't Queen's Park be sitting every day? And why shouldn't every provincial legislature be sitting every day? And the truth is, it's not safe. It is not safe for people to gather. Why do you think the message throughout this piece has been 
stay at home. Okay, we know where you stand. Uh, moving on to this question of China, and no less a liberal luminary than the former Justice Minister Erwin Kotler says the Chinese Communist Party has to be called to account for suppressing evidence and disappearing doctors who tried to sound the early alarm about the pandemic. And he is also talking about the WHO, the World Health Organization, being complicit and as a result not declaring a pandemic for a long time and also uh, not suggesting that that borders be shut down. Uh, What's your view of that, John? Well, I think he's right. And and quite frankly, I think that that uh, you know, you, you know, sometimes you, you hear from from Trump and, and people dismiss it, um, but he's been claiming that from the very beginning with, with respect to China and, and some of the facts, false news that's coming out of China and and withdrawing funds from who from who uh, as a result of, of some of their uh, complacent and, and complicit actions, especially towards China. Um, but you know, we've always we've always worried about this. SARS was a learning learning for us that we thought we were going to sort of you know take take measures as a result. Of, of some of the negative information that comes from uh, from from China and, and and you know and the fact that the government will and now we're hearing that you know there's some of the case, there might be 50 percent more cases uh, that uh, that haven't been reported and I think that you know we're in a weird situation with China because we're relying on them on to get some some valuable equipment. Uh, from them, which, quite frankly, by the way, uh, people like Ford and others, Premier Ford and others, are saying that that'll never happen again. That they will try to manufacture PPEs and essential essential uh, products in, in, in our own uh, boundaries next time, so we don't have to rely on other places. But as a result of that, we're in a situation where you see the prime minister in the government not being as tough on China or or being accountable or pushing back on China as a result of that kind of uh, unusual trade uh, uh, relationship that we have with them. I I would argue that there there might be more to it than that. And uh, we learned that uh, Carla Qualtro, the minister, had a talk uh, with Tedros, the head of the WHO, and is uh, kind of being, uh, okay, I, what's a nice word for Saki? We appreciate the WHO's leadership, um, and we've had some very strange reports about the behavior of Bruce Aylward, the doctor, the Canadian, who is a, a key advisor for the WHO, and, and uh, he's been called to appear before our health committee, and, and no indication if he actually uh, will. Charles Bird, do you have a view? Well, you know, when it comes to China, I'm not a big fan of totalitarian regimes generally, whether it's China or Russia or North Korea. I mean, they're naturally inclined to lie, to obfuscate, to hide key data, to misrepresent. But I also know that in the case of China, you're talking about just a labyrinthine form of government. And so I'm not entirely convinced that, you know, Xi or the people at the very top of the Chinese government were consciously thinking, okay, we're going to lie to the world. I think there was just fatal mistakes made within a very, very complicated system where there's actually a disincentive for junior officials to report the truth to um, people up the food chain and the decision-making structure because you're going to be punished for telling the truth. And that is one of the downsides of a totalitarian regime. The other thing about WHO, though, that you have to keep in mind Donald Trump's handling of the um, COVID crisis has been just an epic failure. I mean, we've seen 
close to 45,000 deaths in the U.S. already. We're going to see a lot more before they're able to turn the corner. And his sole chance of re-election now is predicated on an elaborate pretense that somehow China and the WHO and the deep state within the U.S. government have all been working in concert to defeat Donald Trump and replace him with Joe Biden. And you're already starting to see ridiculous ads coming out of uh, the Trump campaign suggesting that Biden has been, like, central to this entire operation, if you can conceive of it. But that's how polarized American society is, where the bigger the lie, the greater the chance uh, that it will actually find some grounding. Well, and it's, it's deeply concerning. I'm, I really worry that, you know, the kinds of insane protests we've been seeing um, in the U.S. could conceivably spread to Canada. I hope not. I hope people wouldn't be that foolish. I hope people would realize what it is we're dealing with here in terms of uh, a, a, a pandemic where with the virus of absolute lethal transmissibility and that we have to get together. We have to stay home. We have to practice social distancing. We have to shut down our economy for a time to get past it. But in the U.S., ideology and political games are clearly at the fore. And like cutting off $100 million in funding to the World Health Organization in the midst of a pandemic, I mean, it's insanity, right? There should be accountability. Canada gives tens of millions of dollars to the World Health Organization every year. The Prime Minister has indicated that there will be a time where we will get to the bottom of everything that's happened with regards to China. But right now, China's sending us personal protective equipment. They're pretty key to our, to our efforts to... Um, combat this virus. So I'm not sure we want to be standing up and punching them in the nose at this mm. point in time. Um, um, Karen, I, Karen, yeah, yeah just, I, I just want, want to say something that, that there's no question that Donald Trump is uh, using this because to cover his own failures. But in this case, that doesn't mean that he is wrong. Karen, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to agree with you, Libby. Like, you know, we did take advice from the World Health Organization uh, to not restrict flights in from China. And, in fact, I remember that was one of the times that, you know, we were praised by China, by the World Health Organization. Uh, and, in fact, if we, if we had actually restricted flights earlier, would we have been better prepared uh, is, is a question that we need to answer for the sake of Canadians. Because every single Canadian, every single Canadian is, is uh, doing their part and, and, and sacrificing something during this pandemic. So I think it is fair to ask those questions of the World Health Organization. What did you know? When did you know it? And when did you share it? And that's not limited to the World Health Organization. That's going to be every, you know, every institution is going to have to go through that soul searching because the reality is the world was not prepared for this. And that's why we're dealing with the economic fallout that we're dealing with. If we had been better prepared, we could have handled it in a much better way. And part of that, um, you know, again, it's not a blame statement. It's, a, it's just a statement of reality. And if, if we are going to do our job in terms of reflecting on what could have been done better and how do we prepare ourselves for um, something like this in the future, because it will come again, whether it's in 50 years or 100 years, it will come again. And we we, we owe it to ourselves to ask those questions. And I, I think it is fair to, to say to the World Health Organization, you know, what is your relationship with China? What did you know? Why were you delayed in declaring a pandemic? Why did you tell people not to ban flights from China? And and all of those things are legitimate. Uh, back to Dr. Bruce Aylward and the question of whether he should somehow be compelled uh, to testify. There was this 
completely bizarre uh, episode with a reporter from Hong Kong. And he was asked about Taiwan, which, by the way, is not part of the World Health Organization Mm -hmm. because of their adversarial relationship with China Mm -hmm. and is one of the few places that managed to contain this without draconian measures. So he was asked about Taiwan. Uh, The first time he was asked, he pretended not to hear. And when the reporter repeated the question, he hung up on her. Uh, I I mean, should he be compelled? I don't know how we compel him, but should he be compelled uh, to testify? Who wants to take that? Yes, I think he should be. Absolutely. I I think it is, you know, again, we've been following, particularly the Canadian government has been following the advice of the World Health Organization in lockstep. And so I I think it is fair to be asking those questions and and having our representative at the World Health Organization come and address our House of Commons. John? Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff, and, and we've talked about, you know, timing of, of when do you, when do you shut down who and how much money, do you, you know, when do you, when do you sort of give them a lesson or, or, or get lessons from them? But at the end of the day, I think that when this is subsiding or over, um, every government uh, at every level is going to be uh, asked questions and tough questions with respect to timing and who did what and how do they do it. Um, and, and having this doctor uh, uh, testify, I think, will be part of a process uh, to learn exactly what, what happened and when and what, what transpired. And it's nothing else. Libby. It's also lessons learned. Uh, you know, we, we, we learned a lot from SARS. Um, and we're going to learn a lot from this uh, pandemic, uh, and hopefully we'll never see one to this to this uh, uh, stage ever again. Uh, but Karen's right. In 40, 50 years, whenever there might be another uh, pandemic that's going to happen, and we have to learn uh, and be smart about what, what worked and what didn't work from this experience. Uh- to that Leger poll and to Charles' comments uh, about whether those American protests might come here, I mean, it, it shows, uh, for what it's worth, that, that we have a lot more trust in, in our institutions and in our leaders than they do. Is, is there anything surprising in there, or is that what you would have expected? Charles? Well, I mean, this is this is the price when you have a president of the United States who's tearing down the very fabric of his own democracy. I mean, the White House last week issued guidelines for how states could reopen. And I think the general consensus was that it was a, a very credible plan based on three stages, based on hard numbers in terms of the number of new cases reported, uh, underpinned with testing. And what does Donald Trump do? He goes out and he starts tweeting, liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia, I mean, or whatever states he mentioned. I mean, it's it's madness, right? This is his own plan, and he's actually a day later going out and actively undermining it and effectively urging um, angry Tea Party types who are now the so-called uh, Liberty Group to to go out and assemble at a time when there's a pandemic underway. I mean, it's it's it, and he's doing it solely for his own perceived political gain. And I'm increasingly of a mind. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of prophecy and, and predictions, but I'm increasingly of a mind that this guy is dead in the water. And thank God. I, I'm I'm not so sure about. Don't that. count your chickens too yeah. early. Charles. Yeah, when you know. when you see those supporters, and and uh, I agree that, that when you look at some of those demonstrations. But on the other hand, 
they are not getting the kind of emergency benefit that our mm-hmm. government is providing for people here. I think that um, their checks of a one-time check of $1,000 was held up so Donald Trump could put his signature on them. If and that's all they're the getting, Premier Ford? Um, if that's all they're getting, uh, then, then uh, you know, they've got to go back to work or they won't eat. Well, and that's, well, and that's we've talked about that, Libby, that, you know, there is, uh, there's a moment in time where we looked at this issue through the single lens of uh, public health and protecting the hospitals. But, um, you know, we need to start looking at it more holistically because there are, like, there's real economic hardship out there that is, that is real, that, um, you know, and we have to find ways to live with this virus until there's a vaccine and live with it within parameters of, of safety that we can collectively manage. We can't stay in our homes for an indefinite period of time. We, we need to figure this out. Well, exactly. And, and uh, you know, in the next segment, I'm going to be talking to primary care doctors who uh, are at risk of closing their clinics. But, mm-hmm. but the, the fact of the matter is that this is so wide-reaching and everybody needs a handout from the government and doesn't even want a loan because people, you know, they, they don't know how would they pay how back. They pay back? How will they right. pay back? I'm, I'm in the same position as a, as a charity. I, I've got, I'm yeah. running out of cash, and yeah. I don't know to take a loan well, when I'm not going to get the income. So it's, it is so widespread. Yeah. yeah and and so, Karen, I, I think you'll be, you, you, I noticed that the Prime Minister made a comment today and, and, and some funding for charities. And I think, and I remember commenting on, a, on a, another program I was on about the fact that charities have been one of those organi- one of those, the sector that was sort of kind of forgotten when this thing obviously first started getting serious because everybody started focusing on employment and, and, uh, and the economy and, and manufacturing and jobs. Um, but I do give, I did give the Prime Minister credit that he uh, started focusing on and, and giving some money to charities and, and the charity sector, re- recognizing that the work that you and others do and uh, has, has always been quite valuable. Um, but I, I also wanted to say, though, maybe with respect to uh, Canadian views, I did a I did a blog that I posted on my LinkedIn, and I and I did it with uh, we did it with uh, Greg Lyle, um, a very renowned pollster here yep. in Canada, uh, and and his numbers show that you know 58 percent of Canadians are satisfied with the federal government's response, uh, and provincial governments across Canada are getting huge amount of approvals, and Ontario specifically, Ford uh, Premier Ford's getting huge amount of of support. Uh, because I think that you know a lot of what we're doing, a lot of what our leaders are doing, are taking license and, and advice from public health officials and authorities, uh, and are being strong. And even though in Ontario specifically, uh, Premier Ford's announced a recovery committee, a cabinet committee that that's looking at the recovery of of the economy, and it's led by Minister Phillips. Um, and even when people are saying and suggesting that we might have peaked already here in Ontario, the, the premier is out saying, you know what, we, we might have peaked, but do not let your guard down. All it takes one person uh, to reaffect to somebody. So I think that caution uh, and, and the fact that, that Ontarians and Canadians are listening to their leaders uh, means that I don't think we'll even be close to what's happening in the U.S. here. Okay, well, let's hope not. Uh, I'm sorry, guys, I have to wrap things up right there. Thank you so much, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, and Charles Bird, and we will talk to you again soon. soon. Stay safe. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.